All right, so let me get started. Thank you for coming. Uh, you might think that the title of this seminar raises a easiest, the easiest and most obvious question for any Christian to answer. Who is Jesus? Who is this person whom we confess as Lord and we follow him as master? Every Christian should be able to answer that question, right? I mean, that's the simplest and most fundamental issue that every Christian has to deal with. And at a simple and fundamental issue, it is, it is true. This is an easy question. Jesus is God incarnated in human flesh. That's the answer to the question. Who is Jesus? He is God incarnated in human flesh. He is the eternal Son of God who became man in order to save his people from his sins. He is truly God, and in his incarnation, he also became a true human. And all of that is covered really with extraordinary clarity in the first 14 verses of John's gospel, where John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him, so he's the creator, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, which means he himself can't be a created being. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Apostle John is saying there that Jesus is truly and eternally God, and he became truly and perfectly human in order to redeem the fallen human race. And if you don't believe that much, or if you refuse to confess it as objectively and definitively true, then you're not even a genuine Christian. It's that important and that basic. And in fact, that is my shorthand answer to the title of our seminar, Who is Jesus? Answer, He is eternal God incarnated in human flesh. But, They also gave me this subtitle, A Study of Christology, and that reminds me that this is by no means an easy or effortless issue. The branch of theology that's known as Christology, the study of the doctrine of Christ, the person and work of Christ, this entails a thorough study of his person and his work, and that prompts me to acknowledge that A thorough, orthodox, biblical understanding of Christology is actually one of the most complex and exacting of all theological issues. And in fact, if you study historical theology from the start of the church era, the very first thing you're probably going to notice is that Christology is strewn with pitfalls. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is not as simple or as obvious as my shorthand answer might suggest to you. In fact, the history of heresies across the scope of church history makes that very clear. More than half of the heresies that have assaulted the church from the apostolic era until now involve errors involving the the, uh, person and work of Christ. And in fact, the other major category of heresy involves errors that misconstrue the gospel, and many of the major heresies overlap into both categories. They corrupt the doctrine of Christ, and in the process, they pervert the gospel as well. But Christology, just considered as a discipline in itself, the study of the person and work of Christ is especially fraught with 
error and misunderstanding because so many aspects of the incarnation are simply inscrutable. When, when we say God became man, we're confessing that an eternal, infinite, self-existent being took the form of a finite mortal creature. In other words, infinitude is cloaked in a seemingly finite vessel. And that is a reality that's frankly too big for any finite mind to totally comprehend. And so we have to start by confessing that there are aspects of this doctrine that are simply too difficult for us to explain fully and satisfactorily. And nevertheless, because this is what the Word of God teaches, we affirm the truth of it by faith. And pretending that we can fully comprehend what is ultimately incomprehensible or, or trying to unscrew the inscrutable, is, that's a guaranteed pathway to serious doctrinal error. And church history is full of examples of that. When it comes to the doctrine of Christ... Lots of dangers lie on every side, and to make matters worse, they're errors that are subtle and very easy to fall into. In fact, here's a list of some of the notorious heresies that have arisen with regard to the person and work of Christ. Docetism, it's a kind of Gnosticism. Arianism, that's the same view as the Jehovah's Witnesses hold. Apollinarianism, Nestorianism... Monophilitism, monophotism, monophot, can't even say it, monophotizes, whatever. The other name for that heresy is Eutychianism, which is much easier to say. So we'll go with that, Eutychianism. Ebionism, monarchianism, adoptionism, patroposianism, sabellianism, tritheism, kenoticism, and there are at least that many more. So here's my point. Do not ever be tempted to strike out as an amateur and try to cobble together a homemade Christology of your own. If you have not thoroughly studied the history of Christological controversies, you're not equipped or qualified to propose your own sort of homebrew answer to the mystery of the Incarnation. You will almost certainly fall into one or more of these errors. And I stress that because even in a church as biblically well-instructed as Grace Community Church, this is a very real danger. I, in fact, I bring it up because just within the past decade, we had a couple of Grace Church laymen who announced that they had figured out the, the mystery of the Incarnation with a scheme that they were pretty sure no one else in the history of ch the church had ever seen quite as clearly as they did. And one of them said, and I'm using his words, this is an exact quote, he said, quote, My research has not produced one theologian or expositor who has agreed with the thesis of my book. Well, here's a clue. <laughs> In theology, that is practically ironclad proof that your thesis is wrong. Anyway, the gist of what these two guys we're claiming is pretty easy to explain. They insisted that during his earthly ministry, Jesus functioned purely and exclusively as a man. He acted only in accord with his human nature, they said, never once displaying any aspect of his deity. They didn't openly deny the deity of Christ or the essentials of Trinitarianism, 
but they dogmatically asserted that Jesus never acted as God at any time from his birth through his death on the cross. In fact, here I'm going to quote from them again. This is the rationale for their view. They said, quote, If Jesus used his own divine power at any time, he would be disqualified from being our example, and there would be no substitutionary atonement or righteous life which God could impute to us, unquote. In other words, they were convinced that the the incarnation placed a limit on Jesus so that if he had at any time acted as God or if he had employed any of his divine powers, that would have compromised, in, in their view, they said it would have compromised the genuineness of his humanity, and therefore that would have disqualified him from being a suitable sacrifice for us. That was the whole gist of their doctrine. Now, pretty much every elder at Grace Church and every seminary professor who looked at their theory tried to tell them that they were wrong, but they brushed off all their critics and they self-published a book that outlined their view, and they distributed the book to every seminary library they could find across the country, and they had some other books in the works, but they were older gentlemen, and both of them died in the past 18 months before they could publish the sequels. And as far as I know, they, they didn't really get any traction from all the books they sent off to seminaries, but they did, I know for a fact, that they did manage to confuse some of their fellow lay people in and around Grace Church. I know that because for more than a decade, I have regularly had to answer questions from people who were confused by what these guys were teaching. And so this morning, I want to take some time to explain what they were saying, and I want to try to answer it sort of once and for all. Uh, They believed their views were supported by Philippians 2.7, where Paul says, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. And they said, that verse means that he voluntarily gave up his right to act as God while he lived on the earth. He completely laid aside his divine prerogative. And therefore, they said, during his earthly ministry, at no time did he ever make any use whatsoever of his divine attributes. In other words, he set aside the use of his own divine power, his infinite knowledge, his omnipresence, his authority, his and every other incommunicable attribute of God. And so he put all of that on hold, they claimed, for the entirety of his earthly ministry. And so as far as his works are concerned, he always acted only as a natural man, sinless, of course, but otherwise functionally only human. Though he was God, never did he act as God. And so they claimed, when you see Jesus performing a miracle, he's not doing that by any native power of his own. He's employing the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit doing miracles through him, as if the Holy Spirit were an alien power to Christ. They also said that when Jesus seemed to have supernatural knowledge of things that are normally hidden from human understanding, that, they said, is not an expression of his omniscience. It's a prophetic revelation that's being made to him by the Holy Spirit. So when, for example, John 2.25 says, Jesus had no need for anyone to bear witness concerning man for... He himself knew what was in man. That's John's language. He himself knew, John says. They said, no, that's not really a statement about Jesus' own ability to see 
past, you know, the outward appearance and, and, and look at someone's heart, that's actually saying that the Holy Spirit revealed to Jesus what was in the hearts of other people. Now, that is a version of the canonic error. I named canoticism as one of the errors that's easy to fall into. Canonic doctrine is the idea that Christ basically divested himself of his divinity in order to become fully human. In fact, the word canotic comes from the Greek verb that describes his self-emptying or his self-humbling in Philippians 2.7. The Greek word is kenoo, and it does mean to make empty. Canotic doctrine takes it to mean that Christ literally divested himself of his deity. He set his deity aside in order to become man. That's a serious error. Now, to be fair, these guys didn't go that far with it. They, they said they believed Jesus was still God in human flesh, but they were insistent that at no time on earth did he ever act as God or make use of his divine attributes. So functionally, he was simply a man. And their whole theory hinged on the claim that Christ's deity was completely put on hold, completely subdued, or totally quashed, or entirely set aside throughout his incarnation. And they said, you know, his divine characteristics had to be set aside like that, or else he would have disqualified himself as our substitute and our mediator. So that's a slight twist on the canonic error. It wouldn't be fair to suggest that it's classic canonic doctrine, but it ultimately has the same effect. It ultimately says most of the same things. The only thing it avoids is a a denial of Christ's deity in the incarnation. So I hope that's clear. These guys were claiming that during his earthly ministry, Christ functioned purely as a man and never acted as God. And my answer to that is that's a serious misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And in fact, I pointed out to them that What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration pretty much destroys their entire hypothesis because on that occasion, Christ put his full glory on display. That was the whole point of that event. In fact, the Apostle John was there on the mountain, and that's the very thing he is describing in John 1.14 when he says, we beheld his glory, his glory, Christ's glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is saying what Jesus revealed to them was divine glory, God's glory. He was clearly acting as God on the Mount of Transfiguration. And in fact, John, the apostle, brings up the subject again in the second verse of his first epistle. This time he writes, quote, The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. There he's affirming the full deity of Christ by acknowledging that Christ is the source of life itself. Again, he's saying that the transfiguration was a vivid display of Christ's deity. Peter was there on the Mount of Transfiguration as well. And in 2 Peter 1.16, he refers to himself and the other disciples who were there that day as These are his words, eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. Now think that through. Eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. Jesus had no majesty that pertained to his human nature. Isaiah 53 verse 2, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him 
nor appearance that we should desire him. That's Isaiah speaking of Messiah as a man. He had no majesty. So what Christ did on the Mount of Transfiguration was pull back the veil of his humanity in order to reveal his majestic glory as God. There's no other way to read that passage. And that's not all. On other occasions, Christ explicitly forgave sins, and that, of course, is the prerogative of God alone. Mark chapter 2, verse 5, when those men let their paralytic friend down through the roof, Mark writes, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, child, your sins are forgiven. And then the next two verses say this, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they got it, and they were right. Jesus was, on that occasion, he was acting as God, forgiving sins. And in order to prove it, he pointed out that, you know, anybody could mouth the words, your sins are forgiven. That's pretty easy. But healing a paralytic, especially if you do it merely by speaking to him, that would show that Jesus did indeed have the authority to forgive sins because that is a creative act of God to heal a paralytic. And so Jesus turns to the paralytic and says, get up, pick up your mat, and go to your home. And Mark says the guy got up and immediately picked up the mat and went out before everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. You know why they hadn't seen anything like this? Because nobody but God could do that. Jesus is not acting as a man there. He is demonstrating his divine authority. He's proving that he did indeed have authority to forgive sins, and he is expressly and emphatically acting as God. Again, Jesus is truly human, and he's also truly God. Both statements are true in equal measure. There's a YouTube video some of you may have seen from, I think, one of the Ligonier conferences, and this is one of the Q&A panels, and John MacArthur's there, and he says, he makes the statement, Jesus is both fully human and fully God. And R.C. Sproul inter interrupts him to say, uh, I, I prefer to say he's truly human and truly divine. And, you know, from then on, John uses that expression. But the truth is, either way you say that, it's true. I understand why Sproul preferred the word truly, because fully might sound, you know, slightly ambiguous. For example, if someone were trying to say, Jesus is only human and, and not divine, he might use that expression. He's fully human. But when you combine that phrase with the statement, he's also fully divine, I think it's clear enough that you're not suggesting Jesus was exclusively human. And in fact, Jesus was fully human in the sense that he wasn't lacking any of the traits that define us as human. He was a true human, and he was fully human. His humanity was not a mask that obscured a non-human nature, but he was human to the core, fully human. That's an accurate statement. And perhaps to say he's truly human makes the point with less ambiguity. Jesus was truly human, but the point, whichever way you say it, is that Jesus' humanity was not a pretense. It was not an illusion. It was real. He was a true man. He was human 
in all respects, he was fully human. He's also truly God. He's self-existent, eternally immutable, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He possesses all the attributes of deity. In other words, he's not some kind of demigod. He's not just partly divine. He's not a created being who has been elevated to divine rank. He is fully and eternally God. So it's, it's entirely appropriate to say he's both fully human and fully God. It's also appropriate to say he's truly human and truly God. I don't care which way you want to say it. But let's ask some of the hard questions that this raises. How can Jesus be omnipresent and yet incarnated in a visible material human body? You ever thought about that? Did he give up that attribute in order to become a man, his omnipresence? I mean, how, and how can we say he's omniscient? When Matthew 24, 36 and Mark 13, 32 both record that Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour of his return, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So he's, he's acknowledging there there's something as the Son he doesn't know. Also, Luke 2.52 says that as an adolescent, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. How could he increase in wisdom if he was truly omniscient? And if he's, omni, uh, if he's omnip- uh, omnipotent, how many times do I have to try to say that? If he's omnipotent, why does Scripture say that he grew weary and he grew hungry? How could he be crucified and die if he is both omnipotent and eternal? And the answer to all of those questions is very simple, and yet it conveys to us a truth that is incomprehensible. Here's your answer. All of those things are true because Jesus is one person with two natures. That's the very thing we confess when we say that Jesus is fully human and, tr- and, and truly divine. He has a true and complete human nature, and he has a true and complete divine nature. And those human weaknesses, hunger and thirst and weariness, his need to learn and grow, those are normal human infirmities that pertain to his human nature. They're normal, non-sinful qualities. Hebrews 4.15 speaks of them. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. So he not only sympathizes with our weaknesses, those human infirmities, he shared them, the non-sinful ones. It's true that Jesus had to experience all of those things as a true human in order to be a suitable mediator and priest for his people. Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Christ is truly human, and Scripture says he had to be truly and thoroughly human in order to be our mediator. He had to be made like his brothers in all things. That is, he had to possess all of the defining faculties and features and frailties of true humanity, except for our fallenness. So his human nature had all of the defining features that Adam had before Adam fell and plunged the rest of the race into sin. You know, Adam was the paradigm of true humanity until he fell, 
The human nature of Christ had all of the same defining characteristics that Adam possessed at the dawn of creation. He's truly human, just like us, except without sin. And Jesus' humanity didn't eliminate or nullify his deity. That's the other side of this that we have to understand. God incarnate is still fully God by definition. He's immutable, Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So here's another hard question for you. If Jesus is immutably God yesterday and today and forever, how is it possible that he was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, as that verse in Luke 2.52 says? Is he the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, or did he advance in wisdom and knowledge in favor with God and men, which is true? And how do you, how do you reconcile that? The answer is there is only one reasonable, sensible answer to that question, and it's this. Jesus' eternal immutability pertains to his divine nature, which by definition, because it's the nature of God, it cannot be altered or erased or stripped of any of its attributes. His growth in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men pertains then to his human nature and the progress that he made as a real human as he grew from adolescence into adulthood. It's what what Luke 2.52 is describing. So here are some other difficult questions. Was Christ still omnipresent even when the infant Jesus was placed in a manger? Was he still omnipresent? Did the divine mind of Christ know the precise hour of his return, even when he said no one knows, not even the Son? Was the eternal Son of God still omnipotent, even though they had to compel Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for him to Golgotha? Was the Son of God really immutable, even while he was growing from infancy into manhood? And the answer to all of those questions is an emphatic yes. Hebrews 13.8 pertains to the immutable divine nature of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ's divine nature was in no way confined or altered by the addition of a human nature. And that's what's important to understand. Even though Philippians 2.7 uses that word, he emptied himself. The incarnation was actually an event that involved addition, the addition of a human nature to the eternal divine nature of Christ. He didn't lose anything. And in fact, here's how John Calvin said it, quoting from Calvin, quote, "...the absurd notion that if the word of God became incarnate, he must have been enclosed in the narrow tenement of an earthly body is sheer petulance. For although the boundless essence of the word was united with human nature into one person, we have no idea of any enclosing or confinement. The Son of God descended miraculously from heaven, yet without abandoning heaven. He was pleased to be conceived miraculously in the virgin's womb, to live on the earth, to hang upon the cross, and yet he always filled the world as from the beginning. So, Calvin is saying correctly there, both things are true. As a man, he's located in a a definable spot and in a human body, visible, manifest in a human body. As God, he remains omnipresent, and he didn't give that up in order to become a man. 
Now, here's what's most important to understand. The divine and human natures of Christ are united without change or conflict or confusion or contradiction, united in one undivided person. And the theological term for this is the hypostatic union. You've heard that term, I'm sure. The hypostatic union. It means that Christ is one person with two natures. His humanity is real. It's not an illusion. His full deity is in no way changed or diminished by the addition of a human nature. The attributes of both natures are fully intact in one person, the God-man. And furthermore, the divine nature of Christ is not and never has been confined in or restricted by his human body. To quote the Heidelberg Catechism, the Godhead is incomprehensible and everywhere present. It must follow that the divine nature of Christ is indeed beyond the bounds of his manhood, which it has assumed. Again, what they're saying correctly is humanity was added to the eternal deity of Christ. Nothing was subtracted. This is standard Christian doctrine, by the way. This is what the church has confessed for two millennia. And, and listen, in fact, to Athanasius. This is from his seminal work titled On the Incarnation. He was writing about the incarnation of Christ, this very thing. He wrote this almost 1,700 years ago, just to show you how ancient these doctrines are. Athanasius writes, The word was not hedged in by his body, nor did his presence in the body prevent his being present everywhere else as well. When he moved his body, he did not cease also to direct the universe by his mind and might. No, the marvelous truth is that being the word, so far from being himself contained by anything, he actually contained all things himself. Existing in a human body to which he himself gives life, he is still a source of life to all the universe. His body was for him not a limitation, but an instrument, so that he was both in it and in all things at one and the same time. And this is the wonder. As a man, he was living a human life, and as the eternal word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. As a son, he was in constant union with the Father. Not even his birth from a virgin, therefore, changed him in any way. So you get that? Christ is manifest in bodily form, and at the same time, he is still omnipresent. That was true during his earthly ministry, and it is true now and ever shall be. Quoting from the Westminster Larger Catechism, The Lord Jesus Christ, being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father in the fullness of time, became man. And so he was and continues to be, both God and man, in two entire distinct natures, but one person forever. In fact, the forever part is important too. Remember that the the apostles saw him ascend into heaven in bodily form. Colossians 3 verse 1 tells us that Christ is right now seated at the right hand of God the Father, meaning in his bodily form. This is one of the confessions of the apostles' creed. Again, an ancient confession of faith, been around longer than really anyone knows, uh, which says, He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He ascended bodily. He dwells in bodily form in heaven even now. And yet, 
where two or three are gathered together, he's there. He's present with us. So you see what I mean when I say these truths are too large for the human mind to comprehend. And yet it is vital that we recognize and affirm and hold in our thoughts both the deity and the humanity of Christ. Don't become imbalanced in either direction. Now, I want to answer this claim that in his earthly ministry, Jesus never manifested his deity in any way, that he lived a life always and only in a way that, say, Adam might have done if he hadn't fallen. That's a false idea. But there is a germ of truth underlying that hypothesis, because it's true that in order to serve as our proxy, our substitute, both his obedience to the law and as the one who bore our sins under the outpouring of God's wrath, Christ did have to be a true human. That was the whole point of the incarnation in the first place. Why did God become a man? For that very reason, because Hebrews 2.13 actually quotes a phrase from Isaiah 8, which is a prophecy that refers to the elect as the children whom Yahweh has given me. And that's quoted in Hebrews 2.13. Then the very next verse, Hebrews 2.14, which I've already quoted, that's the one that makes this argument. Since the children, that is the children whom God has given to me, the the elect, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He, he, he incarnated himself in flesh and blood. And then a couple of verses later, Hebrews 2.17 and 18 goes on to explain, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the help of those who are tempted. In other words, because he is both divine and human, he is uniquely qualified to be the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So even that verse that calls him our mediator stresses the importance of his true humanity. But he is that perfect mediator precisely because he is both God and man. Nothing in Scripture ever suggests to us that the atoning work of Christ would in any way be compromised if Christ displays his deity at any time during his earthly ministry. That's a fantasy that it isn't, isn't supportable by Scripture. And in fact, on the contrary, Jesus' miracles during his earthly sojourn, the miracles he did, served precisely to put on display in a vivid and undeniable way the fact that he is God. Remember in John 14, when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus replies, have I been with you all so long and you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He's not denying the necessary distinction between the Father and Son there. This is a favorite Sabellian verse. They say, well, the Son is the Father. That's not what Jesus is saying there. He's pointing out to Philip that all of the signs and wonders that he had done in their presence constituted a display of divine power. These were done with the power of God. In other words, the disciples had seen Jesus do the works of God. He had demonstrated graphically that he was of the very same essence as the Father. And they, they are indeed different persons, the Father and the Son, but they share one div- undivided in 
essence. They share one undivided essence. And then two verses later in John 14, 11, Jesus goes on to say precisely that. He says, Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. In other words, he's saying, I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. I am of the very same essence as the Father. And so, therefore, he says, you have seen the works of God if you've seen the things I've done. Because when he did those miracles, he was acting as God. It's significant that Jesus' miracles were always acts of charity or healings of other people. He never did miracles for his own benefit. Have you ever noticed that? He didn't use his divine attributes to escape the trials and hardships and sorrows of earthly life in a cursed world. He lived life as a man just like you and I do. That's true. He is, after all, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he didn't use his divine power in any way to mitigate his his feeling of those sorrows or his experience of that grief. The point is that he never used his divine power to make his own life magically easier. As one esteemed theologian has pointed out, Jesus would not really have experienced the human struggle if he had availed himself of his divine omniscience while he was taking his ninth grade algebra exam, right? Indeed, we are expressly told by Luke in that verse that I've quoted already a couple of times that he grew and learned just like any other young man, except that he was without sin. And indeed, I'd say One of the main and most important ways Jesus rendered obedience to the will of his Father was by accepting the normal limitations of our non-sinful infirmities. And that's why when Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread, although he had the power to do that, and despite the fact that he had not eaten for 40 days, and also it wouldn't have been contrary to any law of God for him to turn stones into bread. In fact, on other occasions, he miraculously produced food. He did it when he fed the 5,000. He also did it when he made breakfast for the disciples by the shore of Galilee. And yet, he refused to satiate his own hunger by a self-serving miracle. So he never used his divine powers to make his earthly life more comfortable. We can accurately say that. But we wouldn't say he never used his divine powers because he used them all the time. He just didn't do it to make his own life comfortable. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He could have made a place to lay his head if he wanted to. He could have created out of nothing the most comfortable mattress since Seely, you know? So there's a germ of truth in the assertion that he lived his life with a full experience of all the ordinary limitations and weaknesses and inconveniences and afflictions of human existence. He experienced all of that real life as a man in a sin-cursed world. But that does not mean that he never, he never manifested his deity, because he certainly did. And in fact, just as it was important for him to demonstrate his true humanity. He likewise had a good reason for putting his deity on display. He was calling people to trust in him, not only as a human deliverer, but as their Lord. 
John 13, 13, he says to the disciples, you call me teacher and Lord, you're right, for so I am. Matthew 12, 8 and Luke 6, verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's claiming to be God. He's calling people to believe in Him as God. Those are explicit claims of deity, and any claim like that would naturally require proof, which Jesus gave by, for example, healing on the Sabbath in defiance of the Pharisees' man-made rules. And in doing that, he was both asserting and demonstrating his deity. He was Lord of the Sabbath. And the religious leaders of that time clearly understood this point. In John 10, verse 31, it says, they picked up stones to stone him. And here's how John's gospel describes that scene. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? And the Jewish leaders answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being man, make yourself God. Now, that was true. He was a man, and he was declaring himself as God. Jesus doesn't contradict the charge they make against him. He doesn't say, no, I'm not claiming to be God. He doesn't say, well, I'm acting in a way that's uh, uh, human, but empowered by gifts that God has given me. This is not my power by which I'm doing this. But instead, he says, verse 38, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Implying, these are divinely wrought miracles. He's saying, this proves that I do indeed share the essence and the prerogatives of God. In John 14, 1, he says to the disciples, Believe in God, believe also in me. And so when he spoke of himself as an object of faith like that, he is clearly not speaking of himself as a mere man. You get that, right? There's more. Jesus received and even encouraged worship in his infancy. Scripture tells us, Matthew 2, 11, that the Magi fell to the ground and worshipped him. At his triumphal entry, crowds of people lined the streets saying, Hosanna in the highest. Those are words of praise and worship. And in fact, Luke 39 says, Luke 19.39 says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because if he's not God, or if he's even not acting as God, and they're, they're shouting these phrases of worship and adoration at him, they're committing blasphemy. And the Pharisees say, you need to rebuke these people, but far from scolding them, Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. And when he walked on water, Matthew 14, says, those who were in the boat worshipped him. A woman anoints his feet and wipes the feet with her hair. And, and here also the Pharisees are indignant, but Jesus not only receives the act, he commends her for it and he rebukes the Pharisees. And there's a scene in Revelation 19 where The Apostle John is spoken to by one of the angelic figures in the very throne room of God, and John writes, Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. This is an angel speaking. Do not do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the witness of Jesus. Worship God. By the way, it's not just an angel. That's one of the angels that guards God in the very throne room of heaven, one of the highest of all angels. And he tells John, don't don't bow to me. You need to worship God. 
Never do you see Jesus refusing worship or discouraging the people who fell at his feet. In fact, people often fell at his feet, and he always blessed them. Now, to be clear, when Jesus manifested his deity, it was always in submission to the example of his Father. In John 5, 19, he says, The Son can do nothing from himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. And then 11 verses later in John 5, 30, he says, I can do nothing from myself. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, you look at those verses, and all, all the people who question the deity of Christ or the canonicists who say he wasn't God while he was on earth or whatever, all of them will, as well as people who teach the, the error that I'm talking about, they always point out those verses and say, this is the justification for my view. Jesus himself said, I'm not doing this on my own. I'm doing it from the Father. It's from the example of the Father. And they'll, they'll, they think the statements Jesus makes that I just quoted there prove that he wasn't using any power of his own when he performed miracles. They'll insist that he was saying that the power by which he did his miracles was an alien energy that was specifically granted to him by God the Father. It was transferred to him via the Spirit, but it wasn't his native power, they say. And here's proof that he, that he was not acting as God when he performed the miracles. But context is everything if you want to interpret those texts accurately. Because in between those two statements that I just quoted, Jesus gives a long discourse, and it's all about his own native power and authority. Here's what he says. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death, uh, passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of just judgment. So think through that passage, all that it says. He declares that just like the Father, Jesus himself has power to raise the dead and to grant life, verse 21. He says, in fact, if you want to look this up so you can see it in your own, we are in uh, John chapter 5, verses 21 through 29 is what I just read. Verse 21 is where he says he has power to raise the dead and to grant life. He says, verses 20 through 29, that he has unique authority to execute judgment. In fact, this whole passage is really focused on the the reality of coming judgment. But in the process, then, verse 26, he affirms his own aseity, or aseity is a word for his underived self-existence, that he has life in himself. No one grants him life. It's part of the essence of his deity. He goes on then to assert 
that he himself is the proper object of a true Bible believer's faith. That's verses 32 through 47. And all of this, all of it, is a plain declaration of his deity. There's no other way to read it. He is declaring his full equality with God the Father. His deity and his humanity are highlighted together almost every time Scripture deals with the truth of the Incarnation. When it talks about the Incarnation, it does not focus merely on His humanity. You you can't even say what the doctrine of Incarnation is without stating both of these ideas. Christ is God, that's His deity, in human flesh, that's His humanity. Neither side of that equation is in any way secondary to the other. You have to keep them both in equal balance. He is God in human flesh. You can't can't describe the doctrine in any way without giving equal weight to both sides. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says of the incarnate Christ that He is the radiance of divine glory and the exact representation of the divine nature, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. In fact, I always say there's no more definitive statement of the deity of Christ than that. That's the verse... I like to show to Jehovah's Witnesses because they don't have a ready-made answer for that one. And here's the text that was originally assigned to me for this seminar. I think they thought I was going to do an exposition of this, but I'm just going to quote it and let the plain statement that it makes speak for itself, and we'll talk a bit about the context of it. Colossians 2, verse 9, "...in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells bodily." That's definitive, isn't it? The word bodily in that verse tells us this is about the incarnate Christ. And it's telling us that far from being set aside or subdued or muffled or mitigated in any way, all the fullness of deity indwelt him as a man. And the context is important here. This is the heart of Paul's message to the Colossian church. The opening two chapters of this epistle reiterate this same truth again and again. Listen to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him, that's in Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together." And then Colossians 2, verse 3, "...in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." You see, in His incarnation, Christ was not only perfectly human, He was also the best and final revelation of God. Christ was the chosen means by which God declared Himself most fully to humanity. John 1, 18, "...no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father..." He has explained, that is, and he uses a word that literally means he's exegeted him. The only begotten God, that's Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, has exegeted God for us. This was a a key aspect of Christ's earthly mission, to manifest God to humanity in a clearer and more personal way than any Old Testament theophany or angelic visitation could ever do. This was his mission, to manifest God to us. How can you say that in his incarnation, he never acted as God? He did it all the time. So are we clear on this? Jesus is both 
truly human and truly divine. He's one person, but he has these two natures, and they are perfectly united in, in an inscrutable way through the hypostatic union, which not only enables him to be a sacrifice and a substitute fit for us because he's a true man, but also a sacrifice of infinite value because this is God to save his people from their sins. And it also equips him to be the perfect mediator between God and man because he is both. Neither the deity of Christ nor his humanity is in any way impaired or diminished or deactivated by the incarnation. And that's why I don't object to saying he's fully God and fully fully man. His humanity is not a diminished humanity. His deity is not abridged or restricted in any way either. And furthermore, it's important not to pit the two natures of Christ against one another. Don't stress one side of the hypostatic union to the exclusion or the depreciation of the other. Both are equally essential to our proper understanding of who Jesus is. Now, I realize I've spent most of my time already here answering an error that stresses Jesus' humanity at the expense of his deity. That's what, that's, that's what this error that was passed around Grace Church for nearly a decade, uh, it, it emphasized his humanity over and against his deity. But I think, frankly, the more common error among most of us would be that we tend, to, we tend to, to stress his deity almost to the exclusion of his humanity. And so I want to give a word of caution about that as well. The New Testament is full of reminders for us that the humanity of Christ is as vital to his mission as his deity. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. Now, that, of course, is talking about the deity of Christ. He has passed through the heavens. He's God's own son, meaning that he shares the very same essence as his father. But then the next verse is the one that says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what it's saying is Jesus is the perfect mediator. He's a sympathetic high priest who, in the words of Hebrews 2.17, since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the help of those who are tempted. And so before we close, I want to talk about Christ's temptations. This is a question that always comes up, and it's a major aspect of his humanity, that he was tempted in all things like we are. People sometimes ask, well, he was tempted like me. Does that mean he struggled with sinful desires? And in fact, in recent years, it's become troublingly common to hear people try to argue that if this verse is correct and Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, then he must have felt the pull of homosexual desire. You hear people say that occasionally. Or he had some kind of lust or or desire for carnal gratification, or, you know, they'll insert in there whatever evil desire they want to justify. And I want to say emphatically, that is not what this means. And I want to be clear, anyone who seriously suggests that Jesus grappled with evil desire of any kind is guilty of a horrible blasphemy. 
Hebrews 7.26 describes Jesus as holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus himself said of the tempter, Satan, he has nothing in me. In other words, there were, there were no sinful cravings in Jesus that the devil could exploit. So then we have to ask, what does this text mean when it says he was tempted just like we are? Well, in the first place, Examine Matthew 4, where it describes the temptations of Christ, and you'll see Satan appealed to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He appealed to Christ as if Christ had, had, uh, had, had struggled with those desires. But understand also, Jesus did undergo the most acute kind of temptation— He was tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry after a 40-day fast when he was in a weakened and hungry condition, and the desire Satan appealed to on that occasion was not inherently a sinful lust, but rather that intense hunger that anyone would feel after a 40-day fast. When he said, "Turn, turn the stones to bread, that was the temptation. Jesus nevertheless resisted the devil's enticement and defeated him on that occasion simply by using the word of God. Then Jesus was tempted just as intently at the end of his earthly ministry in the garden when his soul was in utter agony. And on that occasion, Jesus was struggling with that same sense of dread and trepidation that anyone would fear, feel, if you're facing some kind of inescapable suffering, and in Jesus' case, it's an infinite suffering equivalent to the full outpouring of God's wrath in hell. That's what he was up against. And Satan tried to explore, uh, exploit the horror of Jesus facing God's wrath. And on that occasion, Jesus overcame the temptation by submitting his human will to the will of his Father. When he says, not my will, but thine, the my will part refers to his human will, his desire as a man to avoid, as he naturally would, wishing to avoid the outpouring of God's wrath against him. And the point Hebrews is making is this. Jesus' temptations were real and earnest, passionate struggles. It would make nonsense of Scripture to suggest otherwise. The temptations of Christ were indeed powerful spiritual wrestlings. He was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, in connection with this, people sometimes raise the hypothetical question of whether Christ could have sinned. Could he have sinned? Let me answer that for you. He could not because he would not, because he is totally pure. And again, there is nothing in him that would ever incline him to sin, because he is, after all, God, and Scripture says he cannot deny himself. Titus 1.2, God cannot lie. Habakkuk 1.13, his eyes are too pure to approve evil. There was no way, as God, that he could sin. Now, I realize there's a long-standing debate among Protestant theologians about this, but Frankly, I don't see how anyone can deny the impeccability of Christ, even hypothetically. The idea that he might have sinned seems to me to be rooted in the same set of false assumptions that would make these guys claim that if Jesus had acted on his divine prerogative, he would have compromised his standing as a true human, you know? He's not really human if he ever acts as God, or he's not really human 
if, if uh, he didn't have the potential to give in to those temptations. It doesn't minimize the temptations. And in fact, Jesus could not possibly have sinned because he, as God, he is not only perfectly righteous, and meaning that sin is utterly and odiously abominable to him, but also because as God, he's the same yesterday and today and forever. That cannot change. But don't underestimate the reality of Jesus' temptations just because he was without sin. The temptations he faced were no less powerful or painful than the ones you face. And if anything, I would say they were more powerful because yielding to temptation is what's easy. Resisting it is the real torture. The person who yields to the enticement of sin never actually feels the full force of the struggle. Only the person who resists really knows the full extent of temptation. And so Jesus experienced a degree of temptation that is unparalleled and unfathomable to you and me. And yet he held steadfast and sinless and pure through all of it. He experienced the full force of temptation precisely because he did not yield. I often compare it to the... the. Uh, elimination of dross from gold. You put it in a white-hot fire in order to bring the dross to the top and purify the gold. And what's left is pure gold. And you test the purity of gold by the same method. You put it in the fire and see what comes out of it. The fact that it's pure doesn't diminish the the temperature of the heat that you've, you've subjected it to. And that was true with Christ's temptations. He was subjected to a heat of temptation that you and I could barely imagine. And yet, he held steadfast. Leon Morris, uh, one one of my favorite theological writers, wrote this. He said, To think of Jesus as going serenely through life's way with never a ripple of real temptation to disturb his even course is to empty his moral life of real worth and to prevent us from seeing in him our example. His sinlessness did not result from some automatic necessity of his nature as much as from his moment-by-moment committal of himself to the Father. He overcame, but it was a real victory over real temptation. I affirm that. The fact that he couldn't sin didn't make any of this easy or automatic for him. He still had to resist. And so all of that is exactly right. Christ's human experience was undoubtedly beset with more difficulties and more discomforts than you or I will ever experience. He lived a genuinely human life in every sense. And in fact, let me mention one other text on this issue. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9. This passage explains a little more what Luke meant when he wrote that Jesus grew in favor with God. It says, Hebrews 5, verse 7, He, in the days of his flesh, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. A lot of people really struggle with that text. What does it mean he learned obedience or having become perfect. Was he not perfect to begin with? As God, yes. As a human, there was growth that he had to experience. There, was, there were struggles that he had to endure. 
And all that passage that I just read is talking about his human obedience, his growth to perfection, as a, first as a child and then as an adolescent and finally as a mature man. And in fact, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, Christ is the archetype. He is the paragon of true humanity. This is what full manhood looks like. This is the thing to which God is conforming all of us. When it says he's conforming us to the likeness of Christ, it's not saying he's making us godlike. It's saying he's turning us into perfect men and women, perfect in the same sense Christ is as a man. Now, I want to I finish early for you, but before I close, let me quickly note how important it is to be precise in our thinking about the person of Christ and his humanity. If, if you read his historical theology, you'll discover the pages of church history are strewn with the corpses of heretics who decided that, you know, what the church really needs is some novel explanation on the person of Christ. And I want to reiterate again, these are not areas where theological novices should feel free to experiment. This is one area where the people of God have shared a common understanding for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years. This is one of those doctrines on which there's very little disagreement even between Catholics and Protestants. These are issues that were settled early in church history and settled through much debate and and biblical arguments. And, and I mentioned, in fact, that it, at the start, that if you study church history, and particularly early, the earliest part of church history, you'll see that during the first three or four centuries after Christ, the church was racked constantly with doctrinal controversy, and most of it was about the person of Christ. Early heretics all seemed to follow, fall into error at this one crucial point. Some of them denied the deity of Christ. Some of them denied his humanity. Others concocted strange, complex explanations of who he is and how he relates to the Father. They took his deity and humanity and tried to blend them together into one completely different kind of nature. And this wide array of different teachings caused a tremendous amount of confusion and discord among early Christians. I, I, I read off that list of heretics. I'll tell you what some of them are in kind of shorthand fashion. The Ebionites insisted that Christ was a mere man. He was the holiest of men, they said, but, but he was no more than that, just a man. The Apollinarians acknowledged his deity, but they denied that he had a human soul. The Nestorians made him both God and man, but in doing that, they made him two persons in one body, a man in whom the divine Logos dwelt, rather than a single person who was both human and divine. The Eutychians and the Monophysites and the Monotholites all went to the opposite extreme, All of them found various ways to fuse the divine and human natures of Christ into one new nature. You had the Arians, the early Jehovah's Witnesses, who claimed he wasn't really God. He was just the highest of all created beings. And and most of the Gnostics taught that Christ's human body was merely an illusion, which was a denial that he was truly human. And church councils were repeatedly called to decide between all of these differing views and to look into Scripture and say, you know, this is orthodox and that's not. 
And as soon as one issue was settled, another one would surface and need to be dealt with. Lots of historians have pointed out that it was like a like one of those swinging pendulums that went from one heretical idea to a different heresy on the other extreme. And then finally, in, in the year 451, the Council of Chalcedon issued a statement about the person of Christ that has actually stood the definitive test of orthodoxy from that time until now. This is... This is the simplest, most concise statement of Orthodox Christology you'll find anywhere. And it's an ancient uh, statement going back to the year 451, which says that Christ is, quote, to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. They also said, quote, the distinction of Christ's two natures is by no means taken away by the union of them, but rather the property of each nature is preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So one person, and they say that in as many ways as they can, two natures that aren't mixed or confused or changed in any way. And the genius of that statement, the the element that more or less answered all of the incessant heresies about the nature of Christ, the genius of it is found in the phrase, two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Four negative statements that forever defined and delimited how the person of Christ is to be understood. G.C. Burkauer called those four negatives a double row of light beacons which mark off the navigable water in between and warn against the dangers that threaten to the left and to the right. The fact is, every heresy that ever surfaced with regard to the person of Christ either fuses or separates the deity and the humanity of Christ. The, The Chalcedon statement declared that the two natures can neither be merged nor disconnected But Christ is both God and man, truly God and truly man. So we're right back to the simple statement we started with. Who is Christ? He is God who became a true man. He is still both God and man to this day. When we pray to him, even now, we are praying to someone who knows our struggles and who shared our infirmities, and he was even tempted in all points like we are. Hebrews 2.18, since he himself was tempted... In that which he suffered, he is able to come to the help of those who are tempted. Is that not a profound encouragement? These are precious truths. In fact, I can't think of any truth that makes my heart more glad because we do have a mediator who knows our sorrows firsthand and can represent us to God because he is God. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us a true mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We confess he is also Lord of all, before whom every knee must bow. And may we honor both his lordship and his priestly mediatorial work, with humble and obedient hearts and with holy lives 
as you conform us perfectly to the likeness of his ideal humanity. We thank you for the sacrifice he made to atone for our sins. Thank you for the example he left us, and thank you for the Holy Spirit whom he sent to empower us to follow in his steps. May we do that for your eternal glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.